You're listening to the Vulnerability Academy podcast from UK Finance and the Money Advice Trust, exploring essential knowledge and strategic practice. Hello there. Welcome to the Vulnerability Academy podcast from UK Finance and the Money Advice Trust. Today we're looking at identification and support. Now, think carefully about this one. Has anyone ever compared you to an oil painting? No? Well, you might find this surprising. Your doctor might have. Let me explain. A number of prestigious medical schools are now requiring the next generation of doctors to not only learn fundamental anatomy and surgical techniques, but to also now study art. In august institutions such as Harvard, young doctors are now asked to undertake courses where they sit in front of famous paintings, sculptures and ceramics for 10 to 15 minutes of intense observation before being asked to describe exactly what they have seen in as much detail as possible to their colleagues. The aim of all this, as you might have guessed, is not really art appreciation, but to develop the observational abilities of our doctors. After all, we need our doctors to identify the cues to obscure or common health conditions, or cues which might highlight something useful about a patient's lifestyle or mental state. And research indicates that this might actually work. Medical students who take classes like this have been found to be better at recognising symptoms in patients, and also to make more clinical observations about presenting situations. What is interesting for all of us in this is the identification of vulnerability as a skill that can be developed, nurtured and improved upon through practice and training. Alternatively, it can be ignored, overlooked and left to chance. In this podcast, we therefore consider identification and support in relation to consumers in vulnerable situations. Referenced as core firm responsibilities and FCA guidance, we ask just how can we identify such consumers? How do we start conversations once we've identified these individuals? on what type of support works. Joining us to answer these questions and to share their expertise across a range of situations and channels are Debbie Gill, who's a Specialist Support Team Manager at Vanquist Bank, Morvan Lean, who's a Programme Partnerships Officer at the Alzheimer's Society, who have just launched their new guide, Dementia Friendly Finance and Insurance Guide, Dan Clark, Vulnerability Customer Specialist at Monzo, who's been involved in Monzo's initiatives on vulnerability, and before that worked within Addiction Health Services in London, and Caroline Wells, the founder of Me Included, the Disability Access Review website, former head of outreach and customer insight at the Financial Ombudsman Service, and now a vulnerability consultant. Hello. 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 Now, as we all know by now, conversations about vulnerability can become incredibly complex. So let's start with our panel with the absolute fundamentals. I'm going to come to Caroline Wells first. So, Caroline, why does identification matter when it comes to customers in a vulnerable situation? I suppose the first thing for me is that if you don't identify them, you could inadvertently make the situation much worse for somebody. I don't think anybody wants that when it comes to providing service to to any kind of customer, uh, not just anyone that's in a vulnerable situation. And also customers that are in a vulnerable circumstance might actually have multiple problems and you might be the first organisation to pick up on that and do something about it. I think the worst thing that you can ever do is just assume that somebody else has spotted the problem and is dealing with it on behalf of the customer. You might be the very first person that customer has spoken to and you might be the very first person to take action to actually help them and take something forward. So it's vitally important that um, we don't just turn the other way. We really meet head on the needs of people that are in vulnerable situations. And what are we actually trying to kind of identify when we're doing this? You've kind of outlined the objective to um, get under the skin, not make assumptions. But is it looking out for customers in a certain group or segment, such as people who might be disabled? Or or does it go deeper than that when it comes to identification? I think looking for people that um, 
are disabled is is an an easy way in if you're struggling with the concept of vulnerability and looking for people that are in vulnerable situations. But having a disability, being disabled, does not mean that you are automatically vulnerable. So that in itself can lead you down a rabbit hole if you're not careful. There are lots of different other types of vulnerabilities that exist. And actually, for me, the one that people miss and need to pick up on, on more is around circumstantial vulnerability. So things that have happened to people just in the normal course of life that can derail them for either a short period of time or for a longer period of time. And they're the ones actually that can lead to problems such as mental health problems or other long-term physical disabilities as a result of that underlying problem not being dealt with first off. Okay, that's really, really helpful. That's that's an easy opener for us all. This is kind of a textbook 101 vulnerability. So let's think about how we go a bit bit deeper. And um, everyone, please do come in. So Debbie, I'm going to ask you here. It's, how do Vanquist uh, train all of its customer-facing staff to identify vulnerability? And what, is, what do you actually get them to look for? Well, I think uh, at Vanquist, right from the get-go, so from induction into the bank, vulnerability is part of their initial training. And first and foremost, it's about um, making staff feel comfortable with the subject and at ease. Because uh, it can be quite scary. We have a young demographic there and there's not always the same life experiences as older people within the bank. And then once they feel more at ease, it's about talking about the conversation and it's the art of conversation and all the skills that they can bring to the forefront. Um, I always think that one of the, the best skills that we have are our listening skills and our sight skills. Um, so whether it be verbal or non-verbal communication, it's about really reading, really listening, really taking on board uh, what you're hearing, looking at past histories on accounts, um, looking at triggers, looking at any clues that there might be uh, to enable the conversation to move forward and explore what's going on. Can you um, give us perhaps some examples, maybe others might um, come in as well, about what we might be looking for in a conversation? In a conversation, I know a lot of people talk about disclosures, but it's not always about the customer making a disclosure. So it's about listening, like I say, to those clues. There may be, um, for example, you might hear that somebody's getting confused out of information that you're relaying to them. You might have to repeat things a few times. Um, you might have to speak more slowly. You might have to ask whether there's anyone else there that may be able to support them. There may be communication issues, first and foremost. So it's about asking about, um, is there a better way to communicate? Is there a preference to communicate? So it's just looking out any past history on an account is very, very useful. And at a bank, we can see you know, how spending has occurred. We can see past disclosures if someone's missed a payment. And for instance, they may have missed it because they've been in hospital. So it's picking up on those clues and just taking them further and exploring them more deeply. And it's more challenging in some respects for parts of the business than others. I'm thinking about collections versus kind of lending. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Um, it can be more challenging, but rather than challenging, I prefer to say it's different. I think within collections, for example, there may be that there are more disclosures at that point because we are delving into why a customer may find themselves behind with payments and that allows customers to perhaps open up uh, a bit more readily than they would have in the past if you're comparing it to, for instance, the application stage. 
it may be that a customer doesn't feel that they can explain anything to us because it may um, it may negate their application for credit. So at the application stage, it is about also being proactive in suspicions, in listening to behaviours, in listening to those hidden signs that might appear within uh, any new business conversations. Okay, and you're working across many channels there, which is something we'll, we'll come back to in a moment. But just turning to um, Dan Clark from uh, Monzo. Now, Monzo is a, a digital, uh, mobile-only bank. You, you do have staff on phones. There are people there. I've, I've seen them. Um, and but you tend to communicate with customers via the, the messaging side of the app. So, how does this whole channel setup um, kind of a shape Monzo's approach to identifying vulnerability? Well, it's a challenge. And a benefit. I'm I'm keen to say that it's more of a benefit than a challenge. I think I really like the way that it gives our customer support staff a bit of space to kind of spot the exact type of vulnerability indicators that we've just been talking about. There might be when a customer when a support operative gets a new chat, they might look back and find, hey, previous operatives have discuss the same thing three or four times maybe i need to delve into that maybe there's a bit of context that's easily missed that kind of it's about developing what you were saying it's about developing the the context on top of those things like that and they, it's much much more easy to do that when you have the entire conversation laid out for you i think it can be really 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 positive and we can be really flexible about the way that we communicate to people as well i've, I've found so many times when a conversation can be quite stilted, a bit blocked when you're talking on a chat. It, the, you know, you're getting one word answers, you're getting one line answers and no one's really getting anywhere. If you can just say, hey, let's pick up the phone and have a conversation, suddenly it all unfolds, suddenly everything is there for you. But we are, yeah, we're missing those face-to-face indicators that you were talking about. That's something that, that's one of the reasons why actually we introduced Share With Us, this kind of way of bringing vulnerability out of people proactively rather than waiting to respond to it because we are we are missing that and that would be really that's something that we really need to develop but we get a lot of positive feedback from vulnerable people about the way that they can speak to us you know but I've had it so many times where people have said it, it's so refreshing to be able to speak to you while I'm lying in bed rather than trying to speak to somebody through those tiny little bank windows or in a in an office with a manager that is quite unfamiliar and it can be quite an intimidating setting for a lot of people. And so to be able to discuss these these very personal things. So it's this blend of options. And this, this mm. is something I, um, I've noticed when I've been in contact with um, Vanquist as well, which is blending together both um, phone. You also um, have communication via text, SMS. Yeah, that's right. It's text, uh, email, so letter, phone. So we let the customer guide their preference, mm. whatever they prefer. But yes, it comes in from all sorts of channels there. So one of the interesting advantages of um, uh, chat or with text is that you can pick it up whenever it's convenient as a customer. So um, Dan mentioned the, the bedroom, so I'll mention the toilet, but let's move on to the bus. <laughs> it's um, You can have these conversations. How does it work, Debbie, the, the, the chat function via SMS? Well, we have a dedicated team, a digital team, and they are there and they respond back Within um, you know a few minutes, I think it's sixty seconds. They try and respond back to keep that conversation flowing, and they can respond back with templated wording, but also free form wording, depending on what's coming through from the customer. 
And what's the response been to that from customers? Is, has it been a, a positive one? Do people like this and why do they like it? They so? do like that. Um, it is a positive response because there are some situations that customers find difficult to talk about verbally or to talk about with strangers. And so that anonymity of doing a, a text is a good opener for us then to pick up on. And um, we, we can then offer, you know, a telephone conversation later once we've built up that trust mm-hmm. and once that rapport has got going. But yes, they do like it. So I was very surprised that people, when I when I when I was visiting, there was people um, talking about homelessness or very um, uh, comfortable talking about relationship breakdown. Do you get that via the the app as well? So there's not there's not there's not a need to identify people. They're just telling you, are they? Well. I put a lot of emphasis on training on identifying those exact kind of very subtle, tiny indicators of vulnerability as well. We do get a lot of people coming through just openly disclosing it, even just to customer support, not just with the feature I mentioned. And and that is a really exciting thing. I think that trust that you mentioned is just so, so important. Uh, I'm always really keen that people use tone of voice to build that trust in a very effective way just to try and mirror exactly the kind of tone that the customer is giving you if they're giving you very informal conversation and lots of emojis give that back to them if they're writing in the kind of dear sir or madam kind of way then give that back to them as well and that that builds a really powerful sense of trust i think just to push you a bit what are the indicators in a in a in a message uh, mm. that differ from perhaps something over the phone or, or are they just the same is it the same things you're looking out for it's it can be a little bit harder over a message, but they can be quite similar. I think that there's a lot of the things that you get over chat and on the phone can be quite simple. Confusion, for example, um, memory problems might be a little bit harder to spot in a chat simply because that backlog is there for the customer as well. But we've still identified it through chat, absolutely. Um, language difficulties, very easy to identify over chat, possibly even easier than the phone simply because it's takes a little bit more effort sometimes to put your put your thoughts into writing that does over speech for example and we can identify literacy problems as well we've been talking about that with uh, quite a few industry people in recent events that, that you were at as well Chris about how to spot that and that's something that can come through very clearly over chat so there's lots of cues and flags that we can pick up through voice through chat through sms even through god forbid face to face you know, so it's um, but what what's interesting um as well, both you and Debbie mentioned the amount of data that is available to kind of banks at the moment. I was wondering how close, and I put this to Martin King in our first podcast, who's head of customer vulnerability from Lloyd's, about how far away are we from um, identification in the same way that kind of credit card fraud is picked up or suspect. How far away are we from that at Monzo or Vanquist at looking at kind of patterns of spending and acting on them? Well. We've just hired somebody into our team who's starting today as a data analyst to look at exactly this kind of topic. I think it's really, really exciting. I don't want to talk too much about it because it's at such a kind of embryonic stage. But my my hunch is that for collections and for financial difficulties, I imagine that's going to be incredibly useful. I think that the way the kind of cyclical nature of the way that people are paid and the way people's expenditure goes out means that we'll be able to use that to identify when people are likely to fall into difficulties much more easily. What I'd like to be proved wrong about is things like erratic spending that come with conditions like addiction or or mania or psychosis, things like that. My fear with that is that it's so idiosyncratic that it's so difficult for the data to predict it. I mean, that's just something that... 
anecdotally I picked up at the NHS, it's so hard to predict when somebody is going to, for example, become manic and spend too much. Mm -hmm. So that might require much more kind of human and personal intervention from specialists in the company rather than being data-driven. But I'd love to be proved wrong about that because that would be really exciting. I guess it might not be prediction, but it may be just picking up on a, a pattern that's mm. happening in real time. And it was very interesting listening to uh, Dan Holloway, who's a, a friend of this podcast. He's world intelligence champion, uh, which is pretty kind of intimidating when you interview Dan. You want to ask him, <laughs> what's eight times seven? What's the capital Bolivia, Dan? But kind of, um, um, who talks about AI. He's a mental health campaigner as well. And he talks about establishing your own baseline so you know where you are with your kind of uh, spending and it's, it's clear to the bank. And then the deviation from baseline using AI. Is that something maybe Monzo might look at? I'd absolutely love for us to look at that. It's not something that we've explored yet, but I'd absolutely love for us to look at that. It's something, interestingly, that we do with my own limited intelligence at the moment with, with customers where if they've disclosed something, we can set up a quite a manual system where I'll say, look, I'm going to look at your account every three days and if something looks unusual, we'll, we'll have a conversation um, and I imagine that's something that we could do in a much more technically sophisticated way. So, Debbie, limited intelligence, artificial intelligence, <laughs> let's just call it intelligence. How do you use data at uh, Vanquist to kind of get on top of where customers, customers are to maybe pick out an upcoming problem or something happening at the moment? Or is it more focused on the listening, the conversation, the indicators that are coming through in traditional sense? Uh, well, I echo a lot of what Dan was sen saying there, that it's in the embryonic stage at Vanquist as well. Um, there is a lot of information and data there. Um, we can see, as I mentioned before, spending patterns. We can see history um, of, you know, through notes. Um, we can see past disclosures, etc. Um, but it's about finding something sophisticated to pull that together so that we, we're not making assumptions there as well. I think we need to be very careful to still keep that human element there. One of the exciting things um, about the podcast, but more generally about the vulnerability sector, is the, the involvement, the real involvement and engagement of charities such as the Alzheimer's Society. We've got more than here today. I was um, very pleased to be at the launch of the recent guide on financial services and dementia, which is excellent. It's uh, certainly a, a very good read. Um, in the guide, I was reading it on the way here, and it's, um, it, it notes that becoming more dementia-friendly doesn't mean firms have to identify every customer with dementia. What were the Alzheimer's Society trying to recognise in that more than? Yeah, so there are currently around 850,000 people in the UK with dementia. But I think here we're really recognising that, firstly, not every customer who has dementia will have a diagnosis yet. And it's not the firm's responsibility to make this diagnosis. That's something that we've definitely heard from companies we've worked with before, that they feel like they might have some sort of responsibility to do this and that would sort of put them off. But also, just echoing what you were saying, Dan, that uh, we want to really build a culture where instead of firms having to identify customers as having dementia, um, people should feel comfortable to sort of diagnose uh, disclose their diagnosis. So they're essentially identifying themselves as requiring a specific support. And I think it's also important to recognise that if a customer requires extra support to navigate a bill or to understand a policy, um, then they should be given this regardless of whether or not they have dementia or they, they've disclosed it. So the guide also makes a recommendation for training customer-facing staff to handle this identification process in, in in a better way. Where do you think things are at the moment, Morvan, from the, the people that you're working with? And where does the guy try to push them to? 
Yeah, so I think if a customer facing staff member is sort of made aware that a customer has dementia, um, it can help them to perhaps maybe they can store some sort of information about this on their account. So maybe the next time they make contact, uh, the staff member would a- would be able to quickly identify the sorts of challenges that this person might have and be ready to offer them the right support or pass them o- over to somebody else who can offer this sort of support. But also sometimes staff might not be made aware of a dementia diagnosis. So they might recognise common challenges experienced by someone with dementia, like memory problems, like forgetting their PIN numbers or providing historic addresses instead of the most recent ones, or communication problems, like being distracted by background noise and being unable to then follow a conversation. Um, But we aren't asking them to make a diagnosis for them or even to tell them to go to their doctor. We just want them to be able to sort of support them with their needs. And I think the sort of feedback we've had from firms that we've been working with uh, to make this guide has been that they are, they feel comfortable to identify people with dementia, but they don't feel like they have to have a conversation with them about their dementia. They feel quite comfortable asking them just about their specific needs at that time. That's really that's really interesting about how far you go with that conversation. And we'll, we'll come back to that. what's relevant to know for the purposes of helping that customer and um, what might be kind of a extraneous information that really you're only recording just because you've been told. So we'll come back to that. But this takes us really nicely into um, self-identification. Now, when it comes to the identification of vulnerability, there are at least two camps of thought. And as we've heard, one focuses on looking for cues, clues and indicators of a potential vulnerable situation. So you can explore that with the customer or person involved. But another, however, considers how we can encourage self-identification, as Morven uh, said and Dan has, has alluded to earlier, where an individual essentially discloses the situation they're in. They control that disclosure and what they share with you. Now, this isn't all kind of um, um, the land of milk and honey because um, these disclosure environments, uh, which are sometimes referred to, can be very challenging because there's barriers to disclosure. Um, things like disbelief, distrust or a fear of discrimination. You know, what's going to happen to all this information? Now, Monzo are one of the first banks in the UK to introduce and evaluate a formal mechanism which attempts to overcome some of these barriers to disclosure. So we're very excited. This isn't exclusive. Um, it's called Share With Us Dan, isn't it, that you, you mentioned a moment ago, and it allows customers to do just that, share any yeah. information about themselves or their situation. So tell us about it. How does it work? Yeah, so essentially it's a piece of text that says, hey, you know, if you've got something going on for you that you think we should know more about, quite a generally kind of loose way of wording it to give as much room to bring these things out of people as possible, type it out for us, let us know. Um, it's it's a free text box that comes through to us as vulnerable customer specialists. It doesn't, it's kept confidential. It's not accessed immediately by members of customer support staff so people can feel confident that it's being given to trained people straight away. And it's really exciting, actually. Like we're, on, we're at quite an early stage of this. So it's been around for about three months, about 12 weeks. Um, we've had... We're getting about nine a week at the moment. We had a, a huge burst when it was publicised with our monthly newsletter. And I think the results were really, really encouraging. Like we, I think a, about a third of the disclosures are around health and mental well-being. Uh, 8% are accessibility. 12% about financial difficulties and debts. Um, 16% about financial education, which is, I think, a really mm-hmm. interesting and often overlooked area of vulnerability. A little bit, 5% about life 
events, bereavements, things like that, diagnosis of serious illness. And then about a quarter was just general product feedback and inquiries, which we'll filter out with the next iteration of it. So l- l- let me get this right. This is mm. so this is in the app. So I've, I've put on my Monzo app. Uh, sadly, my phone is so antiquated that I can't run them. <laughs> I actually went to more. Anyway, my, my litany of shame of showing Monzo my technology should be repeated on the show. It's um, So it's in the app and I can type in, where, where is it in the app? Where does it sit? Surely it's not on the home page. You're getting only nine nine a week. It's kind of... <laughs> not yet. I wish it was. But right. at the moment, it's in the help section. So if people search for certain keywords, yeah. like if, I mean, if they know what it's called, they can type share with us. Or if they search for vulnerability or similar keywords around that, then it will appear there. Okay, and it's um, it's like a pipe. Then I can yeah. whatever I type goes straight into the specialist team. Absolutely. How many of you are in the specialist team? So there's four of us at the moment. Yeah. So you've got. So let's do some numbers here. <laughs> it's kind of, so we've got nine a week, four people in the specialist team. You've got a million customers now. Mm. Now that's. I suggest just uh, you know, I'm I'm no expert, but it suggests that perhaps you know the numbers are not flowing in to Completely. reflect the kind of the yeah. prevalence. I mean, could you cope? with the numbers, if it reflected what was actually out there in society. We heard about more than talking about the number of people uh, with dementia. Uh, we know about the prevalence of mental health and cancer. Mm. Could, could you cope with that, that volume? I believe so. And um, that's because I have a lot of faith in our customer support team as a whole. We'd have to conscript a few people to help us out. But we hire people for their empathy skills. We place a big, a big emphasis at the hiring stage when we're getting customer support people around their willingness and their ability to cope with vulnerability. A lot of the tasks they're given at interview are, are based, were written by me. They were falsified real events that have happened to me over the past few months. And so there is a big, big appetite within the customer support team to work in this team, to work alongside vulnerable customers. And I think it's quite an exciting area of growth for those people, area of development for those people. At the moment, we're very close to being able to train up another six or seven people who are going to help us to have 24 or 7 vulnerability support for customer operations, which is really exciting. That is interesting. It's, um, so when when I send through my, um, uh, say, say I send a comment about my mental health, mm. um, that that would then be treated. How What would happen to that information? What would you say to me once I've kind of sort of disclosed this information? Well, it depends massively on what you've told us. I think the... An interesting thing we've seen is some people don't necessarily want to reply. Some people have said, hey, I have, for example, a sensory disability. Please make sure that you'd never call me. You don't need to reply. Just put that note. Fine. Done. Some things are much more in depth. I, I think what's really, really striking is, in particular, is, and this is anecdata, but it's very, very interesting how big a range of mental health conditions have an impact on impulsive and compulsive spending. It's not just the kind of conditions that you'd associate with it kind of automatically like mania or addictions. It's everything from depression and anxiety to personality disorders and psychosis. And so very frequently people would get in touch and say, I have X diagnosis and the impact it's having on me is that I spend impulsively. Can you help? And at the moment we can do quite a lot. We can have a conversation around how we might be able to teach them how to use some of the tools that for budgeting that are in the app already. We can offer them a bit more, a bit closer amount of specialist support, like I mentioned a second ago. We have things like the gambling block as well. We can, on some occasions, although it's, again, in its infancy, we can block fast food takeaways. That's quite common, surprisingly. Because uh, coming from a kind of drug and alcohol background, I was kind of unaware of how much of a problem food can be for people as well. So there's a huge amount of that coming through. 
And we have features in the pipeline that can continue to help with that. So I've got a big list of people that have come through asking for spending controls that I'll be getting in touch with, hopefully. I've got my fingers crossed within the next month or so about um, something called Locked Pots, which maybe I'm not allowed to talk about yet, but I'm going to anyway, where we have... Excellent. This is what we like. <laughs> it's basically like a little a mini account within your account where you can put a times lock in it. So you put your money in it, say, I don't want this... I'm not going to be allowed to access this money until X date. And until then, it's it's hidden away from you. And a lot of people, I think, are going to find that really useful. Fantastic, Caroline Wells. You've you've um, you've seen a lot in your work on vulnerability from the ombudsman kind of um, onwards. Mm. What, what's your thought on these disclosure environments? Are they are they as good as, as Dan is, is is explaining and describing to us? I mean, there are a lot of challenges with disclosure. I mean, what what, what do you think about this? I'm a real fan of layering information. So if you actually make it part and parcel of your daily annual communications with your customer, be it through statements or what you say on your website or actually what you're seen to be saying publicly, I think that can really help make a huge difference to customers' security and willingness to want to disclose something that's really personal and sensitive and they might worry about how someone might react to them as a result of doing it. But actually, if you create that environment of it's all right, like we all have this, you're not a special case. Like we have lots and lots of customers that are going through very similar things. Ultimately, actually, if you've got somebody who's gone through a similar situation who works for the organisation itself, that can be quite a role model. That can make a huge difference to to customers just just feeling very comfortable confident that if they if they kind of put their head up above the parapet and say something they're going to be treated like a human being and treated well and given the support or maybe not but sometimes they're just looking for a way to have a conversation with somebody and that's as much information and support as they need and we'll be quite happy with that so I think so going back to the points that Dan's made before about some of the sort of safe spaces the safe havens where people can disclose something in a way that no one's judging them. <clears throat> they might not even have to kind of say it out loud themselves because we know that that can have a profound impact on on people as well if you're hearing it for yourself for the first time. And actually sometimes people just need to ease into having that conversation about perhaps like the gravity or the seriousness of the problem and, and how much support they might need. I realise I would really like a locked pot. Mm. And I'm not, I don't class myself as being a vulnerable customer. Mm. But actually, I think that's the beauty of it. There are lots and lots of innovations and other kind of um, ideas that are coming out of this that can benefit lots and lots of people. And then you get a situation where actually it's for the many and not for the few. And so it normalises the whole situation. So currently, do any firms come to mind that have good examples of um, disclosure environments? I know we've talked about um, Barclays before in the past have had, uh, they have a money worries hub where it's 11 or 12 vignettes. I remember you telling me about people in different situations, but it not only kind of spells out um, that we will be there if you become unemployed or you develop dementia, or you become uh, physically unwell, but it actually talks about what might happen when you contact the bank. What, what do these disclosure environments look like? Have you got some examples you might share? So the, the ones that I've got, well, obviously the financial ombudsman services, some amazing ones, but that's because I was involved in it at the time. But <laughs> so like, if you're looking for like layering, that's a really good one. But I've seen some really good examples of um, businesses who are 
in the in the job of looking after consumers in their retirement so you think about lots of products where it might be pensions related it might be to do with releasing equity from from an asset which tends to be your home um, and that's something that's becoming increasingly popular with an, with an aging population i think what's really interesting there is some really good examples i've seen of where this layering effect takes place so it's it's actually done right from the start from the moment the application process is put into place this this idea, this this layering and this this kind of open door policy of we're going to be here for you for your lifetime. And that's actually what happens for most of these customers. They are there from the moment they take out this product until the moment they're no longer on the planet. So, you know, there's a, there's a huge amount that can happen to people within that space and time. And so from the from the word go, when you get businesses that at the at the application stage, ask people straight away, is there anything that we can do to support you now? And here's the open door so that if anything changes, you come back to us and let us know. And if you forget that, we will always be in contact with you regularly and remind you of it so that you know you can come and see us. And I think that has a huge difference. And I've seen that a lot in, in pension providers in particular over recent years. That's really interesting. Debbie, um, the, it's about timing and the phrasing of these uh, of these reassurances, these layers, the signals that we send to people to say, look, if there's something going on, um, we'll we'll respond. Um, a lot of your work is, is is with the collections function, but not exclusively at, at Vanquist. Um, what signals are sent to customers at the collection stage, and then for everybody to answer, um, how might we do this at the lending stage? If I'm applying for something and there's a question that comes up that says, you know, and is there anything about your situation that might make you vulnerable? However, it's for I'm not going to answer that. Because I want, I want the product. So, Debbie, how are these signals sent out at Vanquist? How are you dealing with this? At Vanquist, it's, it's about asking the customer, what can we do to make things easier? What can we do to support you going forward? Is there anything that we're not thought of that can help you? Because, um, as you say, it's quite difficult, especially at application stage. It's less likely that somebody may tell you something. So, after picking up on triggers... It's just about um, reassurance, uh, reiterating, asking the customer, is there anything that we can do that's going to make life easier for you going forward? Because the relationship could last many years with Vanquist. And um, again, as Caroline says, it's about right from the beginning, keeping the door open, setting the scene, letting the customer know that we're there for them at any stage of their relationship with us. It's not just at the beginning and then we forget about it. It's throughout the duration. Um, but it's just sensitively just asking um, anything we can do to help you there. Morven, what, what kind of signals do you think um, people who work with the Alzheimer's Society are looking for? We all know about dementia-friendly banking and communities. I'm, I'm a dementia friend. I, I didn't put my badge on today. I left it at home, unfortunately, but I am a dementia friend. What kind of signals are, are, are people looking for from their bank, their building society, their insurance firm? I think that people with dementia are sort of relying on their financial services and the firms that they're trusting in to uh, protect them from um, scams and other sorts of different financial abuse. But they also want to be able to use their banks um, to be independent and they want to be able to manage their finances alone so they want as much support as they can to do this so quite often by asking these sort of questions like what sort of support do you need regularly and checking in and reviewing particularly with dementia because of the fluctuating and kind of progressive nature of the condition um, by by re-asking these questions it makes sure that they they are independent 
Mm. So, so starting these conversations at the points of value to the consumer, the things that we want sorted because of the where we are in life. It's Caroline and Dan. You know, is it about that timing and phrasing? It's the phrase is knowing your customer, but this truly is yeah. knowing your customer. Yeah, and I, it's funny actually because when I talk to businesses about that, they sort of look at me in surprise because know your customer is something that we associate very much with when you buy the product in the first place. And actually, that ongoing relationship that you need to have with your customer is key, particularly if, if they've taken the time and trouble, or you've taken the time and trouble to uncover something where they need more support. And th- and that's a really important point for me is that constant, you know, that that need to check in with people regularly. And appropriately for that customer to make sure that you're kind of on top of the support that they need and that you you can shift and change what you offer to people accordingly and I think through that what's really good for businesses is that they will learn as they go there are some things that you can you can plan for there are certain things that you think might happen but actually you know as human beings we can always throw a spanner completely in the works and come up with something that we've never ever anticipated anticipated before and something that we thought might help actually can actually make it worse for some other types Mm. of consumer and you don't know that until you start having conversations with people and that's why that ongoing checking in um and also it's really important isn't it if someone actually you know takes the time and trouble to tell you something to then never talk to them about it again just seems strange you would never do that in real life why would you why would you stop doing that from a customer service perspective we we sometimes see that in referral don't we there's a mention of an issue um somebody would think okay age uk or samaritans um it's noted down it's almost like the problem disappears and it doesn't continue in that person's life dan you wanted to come in on something yeah i just i think this is so interesting just kind of stepping back slightly and thinking about layering that we were talking about a second ago i think I mean, at Monzo, we're obsessed with transparency. Like we're obsessed with making sure that everything we do is is very clear and very open to the customer. We we talk about it's we're transparent by default. Like we only won't tell you something if we have a very very good reason not to tell you that something. And I think if we can continue to make sure that that image is maintained at a very public level, and if we can continue to try and make sure that we're on like we're visibly on the side of vulnerable people. I'm hoping that we can kind of develop a reputation less as a bank and more, I don't know, a trusted financial home, something like that, something that would make make it really, really, really clear that if, for example, somebody was disclosing something at the lending, at the point of lending, that we're not going to go, well, because you've disclosed that, we're going to deny you this product. What we might do instead is go, well, because of what you told me, maybe a loan isn't appropriate. Maybe we should consider emergency support. Maybe we should consider signposting. Maybe there's other agencies that can help you. But I'd like customers to trust us to say, this is going on for me. And for us to trust us to respond with, well, if this is going on for you, we might might give you the opportunity not to buy this product from us if we think it doesn't serve you very well. So that could be the true litmus test, mm. putting that into the um, the loan application. Mm. Well, it'll be very interesting to see how uh, Monzo get on with Sheva. So we, yeah. we'll ask you back when you've got a team of 40 specialists <laughs> and you're getting 9 million disclosures a week. Um, <laughs> but let, let's take a step back from self-identification for a moment because there's, there's a critical difference, isn't there, between identifying a vulnerable situation and actually starting a conversation about this. So, you know, we all know from personal experience that feeling in our stomach that there's something going on, but we're not quite sure, and we know we need to ask about it. 
to actually doing that. Now, you're experienced folk in the room from very different perspectives. Um, who wants to start us off with how do we start a conversation about vulnerability from scratch? What, what, are, the, what are the tips or the strategies or the, the, the arts that you've learned over the years? Um, well, I think from my perspective, it can go one or two ways. You can either, as mentioned before, gently ask, is there anything that we need to be made aware of? Or to the other extreme, you've got to be quite direct. Is everything okay if you have concerns? Is everything all right with you? Is there anything I can help you with? So there's a difference between subtle just uh, chipping away and exploring, knowing when to step back. If somebody doesn't want to um, talk to you, that's fine, but keep the door open. Reassurance, reassurance all the time. We're here, should there be anything that we can help you with? And that might encourage them to open up later on in the same conversation. Okay, so you make it sound a bit like a dance. Yes, it can be. It can be. So it's kind of, I mean, with vulnerability, what happens when you talk about vulnerability is it sounds so simple, but it's we end up talking sometimes in generalities because it's so difficult to kind of pin down because we are all individuals. But how do we go about normalising these conversations, be they about dementia or cancer or mental health? It's How do we start the... Or do we just put them to one side and we focus on kind of maybe the practical, the reason for calling today, which may not be vulnerability, and hope it comes out later? I mean, what's what's the best strategy? I think tone of voice, again, is is super... Like, well, if we're talking about the, the moment at where something might come up for an individual rather than on a, a wider scale, I think tone of voice is so, so important. I, I, like, we... I like to train people to look for conversational indicators as their main route into discussing vulnerability. And when we, when somebody has identified something in that conversation that they can pick up on, they can, as you were saying, just go very, very gently. Just say, look, I really hope you don't mind me saying this, but and I want to get your main problem solved. I'm here to do that. But you did mention this. Like, Can we maybe talk about this more? Because there, there is a lot that we could do to help with this. And I think on a on a wider scale, again, it's about that organisation's reputation. It's about making sure that to take it to take an even wider step back. I wouldn't have imagined working if you could ask my eighteen, twenty-one year old self, "Can you see yourself working at a bank when you're 30? I would have said absolutely not. And if I make sure you give that guy a slap if you see him. <laughs> and so, but I'm very very proud to work for where I work because we have such a strong emphasis on just making money work for people like making people's lives easier rather than trying to extract profit from them and if we can continue to do that then hopefully we'll get more people coming through like there's a chap that come through the other day saying i heard that you you were the bank for people that are wired differently that's great i'd love to i'd love more and more people to say that to me that We've would got be amazing a lot of things here we should trademark <laughs> the, the, the home of financial trust and now you're the bank for people wired differently more than it's kind of how should we be starting conversations if we work in a firm uh, and we suspect there's something just you know generally it may not be dementia it may be um some aspect of um uh, cognitive decline uh, how do we how do we start these conversations yeah dan i think you sort of alluded to this earlier that um and it's sort of something i've been thinking about while we've been having this conversation that i don't know why we are talking about the word vulnerable and vulnerability because mm. surely we're actually just talking about someone who has got challenges or different needs yeah. mm. so if we focus on those specific needs for example whether it be memory problems or communication problems or other d- difficulties around getting confused um, 
what we should maybe focus on those specific um, needs themselves rather than sort of a blanket mm. vulnerability. Mm. I think we can get too caught up sometimes in trying to label people's condition mm. and then that sort of leads to a lovely little flow chart that tells you what you should do for that particular, you know, problem that somebody's got. But, you know, I, I sort of subscribe to the idea that people just need extra support every now and again. Mm. And it might be for a short term and it, it might be for slightly longer and you might have to kind of jiggle things around a bit to make it work. But customers don't almost need to know that you're doing anything different. Yeah. Like, yeah. So why do they need to know that? They don't they don't do that. It's not it's not part of your yeah. service offering. You're just trying to, you know, provide the information to them in the in the right way. And like to go back to your point about sort of having a conversation with someone, I've I've done everything from, you know, talking about sort of the subtle cues and, you know, and picking up on stuff when people talk about being alone for a long time or mm. lonely. Um, or you're the first person that I've spoken to in the last couple of weeks. You know, for me they're all alarm bells that um want me to start having a conversation with them to find out a little bit more about their home life. And I think sometimes we get a little bit worried within businesses, certainly about, you know, what's going to happen from a QA, so a quality assurance check. If I have a proper conversation with somebody, mm. am I going to get in trouble as a result of it? Because I've, you know, I've said to them, I'm a little bit worried about mm. what you've just told me. And so I think building an environment where people feel supported by their employer mm. to have a normal yeah. conversation with someone. Okay, so what counts is measured in the correct way mm. yeah. through the QA process. And not thinking about locked pots of vulnerability, to mm. use Dan's term, but yeah. to think about <laughs> vulnerability to what? So it's, you're not uh, you're not vulnerable. It's a situation you're in where you require some extra needs. We're asking yep. that question, what are you perhaps vulnerable to? What mm. form of detriment? Let, let, let's, let's keep this conversation going because we started talking about support here. And I sometimes think that we don't realise the range of support that firms can offer to customers. Uh, on the other side of the coin, we sometimes don't realise the uh, the range of support that customers need or expect. Um, so I was wondering, Debbie, when it comes to the support aspect, we've been through the identification, um, we've been through the engagement, we've started that conversation and started to drill down a little bit. Talk about how you kind of formulate the support needs with the customer when they disclose to you. Well, there's a range of support that uh, we can offer customers and it is driven by them. Um, and very much dependent upon their circumstances. One of the most useful um, support techniques that we do is just to offer breathing space. Um, just that breathing space can be enough um, that really supports customers get on top of whatever they're going through or to seek further help or guidance and not have fear of, uh, of perhaps collections or somebody ringing them up asking to pay a debt so, so just 30 days at the moment you would offer them or would you offer them longer it can be longer it very much depends on the circumstances in the specialist sport team that i manage um it can be for much longer periods depending on exactly what is going on with them and the seriousness of it mm. um and then we offer as a bank there are short-term long-term plans um there is uh, i've already mentioned about different forms of communications we offer messages that can go out as reminders on billings. Um, we can look at um, large print, braille, audio type talk, um, just setting up things like direct debits or continuous payment authorities to help somebody who may have memory problems in making their payments every month. Um, we can also look to no longer pursue the debt, depending on the circumstances, or in some cases to write off that debt. So there is a huge range. 
of um, support that we can offer customers. And I reiterate, it is offering. Mm. It's not telling the customer, this is what we're going to do. Because we can have people who may have the uh, same health condition who want completely different things. And it is all about their individuality and what their own needs are. And with the breathing space, because breathing space is both an opportunity, but there's also sometimes a risk there where everything's put on hold for 30 days or maybe a bit longer. Um, But then you come to the point where you pick up with the customer and nothing's really changed at their end. And they're given another breathing space and there's, there's no real resolution to the situation or sense of momentum. How do you work out kind of because this is something you have to work over time you don't know from those initial conversations how do you work over what time with the customer what they feel is best for them and what's going to work most effectively for vanquish i think it's about on hearing what the circumstances are will determine whether we're talking about a few weeks or a few months for instance if if somebody is going in and and having serious health complications and going into hospital for a long time or embarking upon cancer treatment, for example. We're aware through the training of our staff um, exactly what that may entail from a a treatment point of view. Um, And so we know sort of from the offset what type of breathing space that we're talking about. Um, But you're right, it can prove difficult at times when we re-engage with the customer and things don't feel as if they're moving on. And that's where we will try and encourage um, to see whether we can make some sort of progress there. So if the customer, if you feel that they're unable to, then we'll be looking at do they have third parties that support them, family members, anyone that can also engage with them that might help us to move that onwards for them. Okay, it's often the case that the uh, the financial toolkit in firms is large and heavy. It's full of spanners and hammers and screwdrivers and what else you keep in the toolkit. Um, but when it comes to longer term uh, vulnerable situations, be they gambling or long term illness, we sometimes struggle to know what to do. You know, it may not be. Then how do you deal with those longer kind of ongoing support needs? You know, mm. how are you addressing those? Well, when we've explored everything that we can do as an institution, if it, like taking gambling for an example, once we've had a long conversation with that individual where we've talked about the gambling block, we've talked about maybe reducing ATM limits, we've talked about lots of budgeting features and things like that. We've, we've had a conversation with somebody that's gone on for so long that we're likely to have an incredibly good rapport with somebody. Like they're listening to you, they're, they're, they're paying attention. They, they know that they know that we care and so I get I get really excited about signposting like I think it's a really it can feel like a really simple thing to do and it can sometimes feel if it's done inappropriately it can feel like you're fobbing the customer off but if it's done appropriately it's life-changing and we've seen that so many times at Monzo especially for gambling at the moment because that is obviously something we've been in the, the media for and something that's attracting customers to us like we've seen We've seen gambling signposting be absolutely life-changing because people are paying attention to you. That's what the research and addiction shows, is that you need to have that rapport with the person you're speaking to. You need to have that kind of, at least some semblance of a relationship with them to actually listen. And so when you're saying, hey, maybe go to Gambler's Anonymous meeting or here's the information for the National Problem Gambling Clinic, you're doing something incredibly effective. So support needs can be, they can go for years. So you can be both a customer and have ongoing support needs for a long time. And it brings in the Equality Act as well here, clearly. I just wondered, as we round off this conversation, kind of how do we balance those long-term support needs? I had the hunch that financial services sometimes do this well, but mostly don't do it so well 
where there's an ongoing need that a person has where it's not a case of, um, okay, 116123, there's Samaritans away you go, or refer to kind of the Alzheimer's society, that you're having to look at the whole person, the whole customer. So a quick word from each of you on perhaps kind of how we should be taking that relationship or that, that challenge ahead. Well, we're a young company, so long term for us means, uh, you know, six months to a year. But at the moment, we're doing that on quite a personal level. You know, we're, we're having people like myself speaking to customers regularly, discussing their needs and trying to develop solutions for them as and when they come up. Now, the question is, is how can we scale that? And I think we can, I, I would hope that we can scale that by, well, I'd like to see us scaling that by continuing to do that. I would like f- to keep that human element into it very much so and I believe that we have hired some amazing people that can start to take on some of that work absolutely more than you're you're on the other side well not the other side but you're coming it from a different perspective it's these longer term support needs they're not easily attended to by a forbearance plan or um, changing the repayment arrangements but there's something deeper going on there how do how firms approach this yeah definitely i think that as we said before firms should be sort of reviewing um their support needs of their customers but firms should never be answering questions or providing information that they don't feel confident providing so this can obviously have all sorts of negative consequences because the information might be interpreted incorrectly or they might get themselves into a situation later down the line where they don't feel capable of handling something due to sort of the specific abilities and knowledge that someone might need to do that but instead firms should sort of be aware of the organisations and services that they can signpost to so that they're ready to sort of provide them when difficult questions are asked. Caroline? I think there's like there are a few things in life that we know are going to happen like life happens to us and some of us get sick and some of us die unfortunately and so for me businesses need to um really think about that more than they are at the moment and it seems to me that for you know longer term situations that people find themselves in there's still a little bit of impatience about hasn't the customer got better yet don't we need to pull them back out of this pool and put them back into kind of our business as usual pot (laughs) that's kind of some of the expressions that I've heard and for some customers that's never going that's never going to happen you're always going to need to give them that extra support so businesses need to build that into their processes and their procedures to have that flexibility and also the manpower to be able to support that because if you're if you're selling a lifelong commitment to a customer which is what some of these products are then you're in it for better or for worse aren't you it's like a marriage contract you've got to you've got to look after them when things aren't great and and you know for the rest of the time it's absolutely fine and for the majority of customers that businesses have we all operate our accounts without any trouble whatsoever and actually don't need any help until right at the end whereas for some people there's more support that's needed and the signposting thing is invaluable actually if you get it right and you get somebody in front of the right organization that can provide the customer with the right level of help in the way that they need it the amount that that takes off your shoulders and gives you back the ability to service their account or Mm -hmm. to get on with the product as it should be um, that's got to have long-term sort of um, financial and commercial benefits to a business at the end of the day. And you still learn as you're going along from that organisation about what the future needs of your customers might be in, say, 5, 10, 15 years' time. Debbie? Yeah, completely agree with that, Caroline. Um, we need to keep that flexible approach. We need to retain customers. That's 
what we're in the business for. Um, we want our customers to enjoy the benefits of the products that we offer and we want to be able to support them in using that. And that goes throughout the lifetime of their relationship with us. And as Caroline says, um, we're all susceptible to vulnerability at any point. So we need to get on board and we need to work with customers to help them. Fantastic. Well, there's so many more questions I could ask you. Um, but with that, very sadly, we've, we've reached the end. So thank you very much. I mean, this has been a discussion where we started with doctors taking classes to learn their arts from their elbow. Then we went through identification and self-disclosure environments across a number of channels. And we've kind of ended up with considering engagement, understanding and the, the options for support. So in listening to the debate, you may have reached your own different conclusions. Maybe you're shouting on the London Underground or shaking your head vigorously. Um, if you do, let us know through the Vulnerability Academy portal or send me a love or hate mail on Twitter. It's uh, at Chris underscore Fitch. Until then, it only leaves me to thank our guests, uh, Debbie Gill. Thank you. Thank you. Dan Clark. Thanks very much. Caroline Wells. Thank you. More than lean. Thank you uh, very much. Thank you for their thoughts and opinions and to wish you all well until we meet again. Thank you. That was a Vulnerability Academy podcast brought to you by UK Finance and the Money Advice Trust. For more information, visit ukfinance.org.uk and moneyadvicetrust.org slash vulnerability. Produced by the podcast company.